for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today's teaching text comes from 1 Peter 3, 18-20. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring to you, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. This is the word of the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks, John. All right, let's share the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Today we're talking about that next phrase in the creed. He was crucified, died, buried. He descended to the dead. Pretty weird scripture, too. I bet some of you are like, what, what was that? Well, there, was, there were two friends. They were good friends, too. They had been through a ton together. If a friendship could have an odometer, the odometer on that friendship would just be downright impressive. They had been through highs and lows, births and deaths, I mean, they had weathered major, major storms of life together. And as this friendship entered into a new season, they both felt that for reasons they couldn't quite explain, there was a distance growing between them. It hurt their hearts, and, you know, there was no specific grievance that they could point to, but they both just felt it. They searched within themselves, they talked with their spouses about, why, like, why is this happening? Why do things feel a little bit off, a little bit weird? They talk it through and nothing makes sense. And finally, the night comes when pressure builds enough where they sit down together and they're going to process what happened. And in the context of that conversation, things got a little bit tense. And finally, words were spoken. Words that came out like verbal daggers and it felt like, ugh, a knife right to the heart, Tony. And it just dragged down. And they were words, and the, the wound was gaping and just oozing with blood. It hurt all the more precisely because of their friendship, precisely because of everything that they had been through together. The people closest to us are the ones who can wound us the most profoundly. They tried to talk it through. They hoped that time would heal all wounds, but it didn't heal this one. This one just hurt and exacerbated the problem all the more. Apologies were given, but they could never get quite back on the same page, and it, it seems to be the case that the friendship was over. 
unless, unless with some kind of like untold divine maturity and wisdom and perspective and drawing on all those years of friendship, one of them, especially the one who had been hurt, uh, could, could perform an act of love could extend charity and generosity in a way that bound them back to each other. Like, look, we're bigger than this. We can get through this. And yet they were just too hurt. They were too hurt to, to try to let one another heal each other's wounds. And so ended the friendship. Tragedy. Yet it's a tragedy that probably rings true for many of us because we've had experiences with people that we love dearly who have wounded us profoundly. And at times it can happen, it can be the wounds of a friend, it can be the wounds of a spouse or a former spouse, where either in our chest or our back we still feel the pains of that knife and that betrayal. It can be the wounds of a parent and things that they've said to you or good words that they've withheld from you. Uh, those wounds hurt us profoundly. And at a certain point, that gap that we feel between ourselves and other people is no longer about the initial content, the words spoken. It becomes more increasingly about the relational and the emotional sense and atmosphere of stuckness between the two people that just feels palpable. It's a funk that you just can't shake. Now, I share all of that to say that when you hear a presentation of the gospel and you, you hear about the idea of there being a chasm between humanity and God, this is not just an abstraction. This is not just a theory to which we cannot uh, relate. It's not, it's, it's not out of touch with real life because we all know what it's like to feel the pain of that gap and the distance between us and people that we love. We know what it's like to be in a rut. We know what it's like to get hurt and then draw lines that, that form tribes that perpetuate generational tension. And this is the story fundamentally of humanity. That though you know, God the Father created the heavens and the earth, despite the very good beginning of all of creation, humanity has rebelled against God, has rejected God, and has driven this wedge between us, this relational funk that we seem unable to shake. And the gap is not just between us and our Creator, but it's between us as creatures. You know, we see Adam and Eve immediately begin blaming one another. Cain kills Abel. There's distance and enmity between people. There's now this sensation of there being a gap between us and heaven, us and our Creator. Sometimes you want to pray. Sometimes you can feel really close to God, and yet more often than not, that gap feels so big. Prayer feels like a monologue or a soliloquy, and you feel like, is anybody up there? Does anybody still take calls? I like the songwriter Andrew Peterson said, can't you feel it in your bones? Something isn't right here. Something that you've always known, but you don't know why. The distance is real. Something is wrong. But from the day that Adam and Eve left the garden, God has been working to make it right. There are two aspects of God's character that serve as guardrails for how God has determined to work to make all things right. On the one hand, we have God's holiness. And on the other hand, we have God's love. And God's holiness requires that the wrongs that we've inflicted upon one another and we've inflicted upon heaven be addressed and rectified. God's holiness requires that. 
It's a truism. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. When you speak careless words to someone else and those words are just left hanging and never addressed or, or atoned for, it creates a gap in a relationship. It's like a burr in the saddle. It, it, it causes a problem that, that causes us to stumble down the road. Every careless word spoken and every act of, of hatred perpetrated in God's good world must be accounted for. But this is not just, it's not just God's holiness that requires it to be dealt with. It's actually our own sense of justice. As I said, when someone wrongs you, you know those words should be repented of. We know that when we screw up, that things are going to be off until they're righted. We're feeling this on a city level, and we've been feeling it in our country at the centennial of the race massacre. A hundred years later, we're still actively discussing, did we adequately atone? Did we give the proper reaction to those original heinous actions? We're still discussing, have we done justly by the remaining survivors? It's why the, the conversations, the, the investigation into the burials is so important and the possibility of mass graves because we can't bring peace, we can't establish true justice and shalom unless there's a sense of atonement, truly owning what happened. Now you expand that logic of, of personal affronts between people and the race massacre to a cosmic scale and one sees the necessity of all human wrongs being held to an account. But the good news is that it's not only God's holiness that guides how God is working to make all things right, but also uh, God's love. God's love is the, the generating, animating uh, source behind all of the redemptive activity that God has taken in human history. And if these two dynamics, God's holiness and God's love, the necessity of rectifying wrongs and the love of God for the wrongdoer can be present then true restorative justice and reconciliation is possible. True reconciliation. And while this cross behind me is, in untold numbers of books could be written about it. And while they're all numbers of, of, of explanations and theories and ways of understanding the cross and its significance, at its core, it is the supreme act of divine justice in sacrificial love by God to reconcile all things to himself through Jesus Christ, to bring together estranged humanity, eliminating the barrier between us and between us and heaven. In some mysterious sense, every act of hate, every careless word, every destructive impulse of humanity has been laid on Jesus, taken up upon Jesus on the cross. Brian Zond said, at the cross we see where Adam and Eve's penchant for blame and Cain's capacity for killing have led us to the murder of God. A couple of minutes ago, John read the passage from Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Brian Zond said again, the cross is not about the appeasement of a monster God. The cross is about the revelation of a merciful God. At the cross, we discover a God who would rather die than kill his enemies. The, the cross is where God in Christ absorbs sin and recycles it into forgiveness. The cross is not what God inflicts upon Christ in order to forgive. The cross is, the cross is what God endures in Christ as he forgives. And once we understand this, 
we know what we're seeing when we look at the cross. We're seeing the lengths to which a God of love will go in forgiving. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Peter in 1 Peter 3 said it this way, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. For what purpose? Reconciliation, to bring you to God. Thomas Oden, which is not a pseudonym of mine, but actually a systematic theologian, uh, said uh, Christ died, that's a historical fact. Christ died for us is the meaning of that fact. It was the supreme act of love to bind together those who have grown cold and distant from one another, even heaven and earth. It's astounding that the cross has become an icon of beauty because it was anything but in its original context. The cross was a sign of imperial domination. The cross is a threat that this is what happens to enemies of Rome. This is what happened when you mess with us and try to supplant us to make for yourself your own kingdom. It was an excruciating way to die. It would often take two days of, of absolute suffering. And the length and the horror of death by crucifixion is what commended it as a tool of political punishment. People on the cross died of, of blood loss. They died of shock or exposure, dehydration. Unable to hold themselves up and their lungs filling with fluid, they would die of asphyxiation, asphyxiation. And leading to and on the cross, we see that Jesus identified with every form of human suffering. Leading up to the cross, he knew what it was like to suffer relationally when someone that you care for and know deeply betrays you, like Judas did for 30 silver coins. He knows what it's like to have one of your three best friends deny you in your earshot as you've been arrested. Knows what it's like to stand in front of the Sanhedrin and to be, and to be punched in the face and mocked and spat upon, to have his beard, beard pulled, to have lies accused of him, so that he was speaking blasphemy. He knows what it's like to have an angry crowd saying, like, crucify him. Let his blood be on us and on our children, to see people betraying themselves. Where was the crowd that he had fed, the 4,000 and the 6,000? Where were the 72 that he had sent out to drive out demons and, and at the cross and leading to it? He was utterly and truly alone. He experienced physical suffering, being scourged, being flogged, being, just having beaten uh, the, the life out of him, carrying his cross publicly and all those people who had adored him now seeing him facing the consequences of thinking himself a king. And then finally to be nailed to the cross on his hands and his feet, to be stabbed in the side with a spear. And we know that Jesus was truly human, and it, as Ben just said, it actually hurt because in, in his humanity, he cried out from the cross the words of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The fact that this phrase, which is Aramaic, the Aramaic phrase, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, is preserved in our Bibles, tells us it's probably true because it would have been foreign to almost all of them. From the cross, he cried, why have you forsaken me? Now, some people will say, or some worship songs will say, that in that moment, the father turned his face away from the son. That's an anthropomorphism. That's ascribing uh, this, this physical activity to God, which, who is beyond physical form, God the Father. I like how a church father named Leo said, it was not as if when Jesus was fixed on the cross, the omnipotence of the father had gone away. 
Jesus in his humanity felt very much abandoned and yet in his divinity continued to enjoy fellowship with the Holy Trinity. There was never a moment in which the Trinity betrayed itself. Jesus felt abandoned in his human nature, but he never broke fellowship with his Father. But in expressing his very real sense of abandonment, Jesus identifies with us who regularly feel the sensation of God's absence. Tom Oden again says, In the light of this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No believer is in a position to say that one's own hour of darkness is darker than that of God the Son. In whatever anguish, the believer can recall that he or she is crying out in companionship with one who also experienced abandonment and who continued nonetheless to pray to the Father. Do you feel abandoned? Do you feel God's absence? Jesus has been there too. To affirm in the creed that Jesus was buried and that he descended to the dead, on the one hand, is not all that weird or shocking or novel. It's really just a way of insisting that he actually died. He really did die. He did not appear dead. This was not a Houdini kind of thing where he pulled one over on everybody. He actually died. He was buried, and, and the creed says he descended to the dead. Now, this is a strange phrase, not one that we use regularly. Uh, some versions of the creed say he descended to hell which feels problematic for many to think about Jesus, the innocent Son of God, going to a place of eternal conscious torment. But this reflects a misunderstanding of what the words mean. It says that he descended to Sheol. Sheol in the Old Testament imagination is also known as the abode of the dead. It's Abraham's bosom. Those who die and are gathered up to their fathers are those who have gone to Sheol. To say that Jesus descended to the dead is just to say that he died. And we know he died because he went where dead people go. But what on earth did he do while he was there? Though Jesus was dead in his physical body, his spirit was still very much alive and had an important task to take on. Some of you, are, I'm going to read this and you think, is that from like the book of Enoch or one of those crazy, you know, lost gospels? No, this is First Peter. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Some of you in a college class have had your mind blown because some professor asked the question, oh yeah, well how do the ethics of God work out when he's going to send to hell everyone who came before Jesus who never had a chance to hear the gospel? Well, 1 Peter chapter 3 provides us with this amazing insight. What did Jesus do on Holy Saturday? What did Jesus do when he truly died? He went to the place where dead people go and he preached the gospel. To those who had been imprisoned from the time of Noah, he preached the good news of what was happening in and through his own life and death and what was coming in his resurrection. Ephesians chapter 4 gives us this picture that Jesus has gone to the abode of the dead and taken a flag for the kingdom of God and planted it in the ground and said, this is mine now too. And he gives this picture of him leading out a triumphant procession. They're caught up in the train of his resurrection. He went to where dead people go and he preached the gospel and he led out a triumphant procession. 
There's usually, for many people, a gap between Good Friday when Jesus died on the cross and Easter Sunday, and Holy Saturday remains this kind of unspoken mystery. We had our first Holy Saturday service uh, this year. A handful of us were here, and I shared the song from Andy Golahorn that I love where he takes a little bit of artistic license, and he says, in the message of Holy Saturday, we see that even hell is not a God-forsaken place. Even death. The absolute worst of what humans can go through, God in Christ identifies with, and he can say, I've been there. Feel abandoned by God? Jesus can say, I've been there. You feel like you're in the depths of hell? Jesus can say, I've been there. And there in the depths, he preached good news. Still others pick up on the idea and the imagery of, of, that animates how they think about Holy Saturday when they look at the story of creation and how Jesus was, was laid to rest on the Sabbath. And on that, this, it reminds them of the seventh day of creation when God rested. And Jesus, having accomplished the work that he was sent by his Father to do, rests on the Sabbath and gears up for the beginning of the first day of a new creation. And it's in John's gospel that one of the women comes to the tomb and the sees who turns out to be Jesus, but it says mistakes him for the gardener. And he is, he's the gardener of God's new creation. He rests ahead of a new work, bringing in the age of resurrection. Easter Sunday would turn out to be the first day of a new creation. I've long struggled to understand the cross. I've long struggled to understand how does the gospel work, the mechanics of it and all of that. And I appreciate how Tom Oden said, it's less important to know exactly how it works, more important to know that it works, putting our trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross for us. But today as we contemplate this, the cross, Joe DeLay built this beautiful cross for us. I want you to picture the cross superimposed over an image of planet Earth. And hear the words of the great church father Gregory of Nyssa who said, The four arms of the cross converge in the middle and become a universal symbol of the one who binds and reconciles all things to himself and makes them one. If you can imagine the arms of the cross reaching out in all directions around the globe, it's as if God and Christ is reaching out and pulling all things to come near to himself to bind us together and reconcile us one to the other and us to our Creator. At the most basic level, hear the good news of the cross, that in the, in the cross, God in Christ has pronounced His love for us. That God in Christ is welcoming us and inviting us to be near Him, to draw near. This is the enduring message of the cross. But what hinders our reconciliation? Well, first, it's the power of sin. This is very real. Many of us know what it's like to, to so desperately desire not to choose that destructive behavior and yet find ourselves unable to do it, find ourselves powerless before it. And we are, in fact, impotent. Do you feel powerless? Do you feel weak? Now, the good news, on the cross, God has conquered the power of sin over us. The power of sin over us died with him. And this is a central image of the, the Pauline epistles. You see it in Romans chapter 6. Anytime Paul talks about baptism, in some mysterious sense, when Jesus was laid in that tomb, so were we. 
In some mysterious sense, when Jesus was laid in that tomb, our sin nature was laid with him. And so Paul can say, so count yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. The power of sin over us was laid to rest when Jesus was buried. And this frees us to choose life. Now, we need training to learn to live freely. This is ultimately the work of sanctification and discipleship, but we need to be trained to live into our freedom. And we need to to live into this freedom. We need to do war against the power of the enemy by telling our souls the truth. How many many of you perhaps have memorized Galatians 2.20? And if you haven't, you should. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The mysterious sense we're bound up with Jesus in both his death and also his resurrection. Who are we? We are dead to sin and also alive to Christ. One really interesting practice that we see catechized into early believers in the first centuries of the way was teaching new believers to do war against the lies of the enemy by learning to cross themselves. It was a central practice of primitive Christianity. Uh, One church father said, make this sign as you eat and as you drink, when you sit down, when you go to bed, when you get up again, while you're talking, while you're walking, at brief, at your every undertaking. And they'd often pair this idea of being crucified, of of crossing yourself with Galatians 2.20, to tell our soul, remind ourselves who we are. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul talks about the imagery of putting on the full armor of Christ. It's the idea of marking ourselves. I am one who is loved. I am one for whom Christ gave his very life. And the sin nature in me died with Christ and I am alive to him and dead to sin. We do war against the power of sin by telling our souls the truth. Some of you Protestants, we're we're all Protestants. Man, make the sign of the cross. I, you know, have been in charismatic Pentecostal Protestant circles all of my life. And probably beginning seven or eight years ago, I just wanted to do it. And some of you, some of you were Catholics in your upbringing. And there's a part of you that still longs to do it. And you feel weird doing it. I would just do it as a, a sign of worship. Just like our, our faith needs something to do and something to touch. It gives us, we're, we're marked by the cross. We're different. We're dead to sin. We're alive to Christ. Do it. We reflect the impotence and the powerlessness of sin by, by bringing it into the light, by telling ourselves a truer story about us. Our sin thrives. The power of sin uh, maintains itself by living forever in secrecy. And so we undo the power of sin and we live into the freedom of as children, as who we are as children of God by confessing our sins freely. Confession of sins to other believers is one of the most important things that any of us can do. I hope that it's a behavior that you do not unregularly. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to each other and then pray for each other so that you can, you can heal. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us. Forgive us and purify us of all unrighteousness. When I was like six or seven years old, Chuck Ammons, I don't, I don't wonder where Chuck is, I have no idea. 
He was the children's pastor at Woodlake Assembly of God, and I was in the room, and he quoted that verse. And he said, if you want God to forgive your sins, come up and confess, and he'll forgive and he'll purify you. And I have no idea what sins seven-year-old John Odom had committed, but I sure felt the need to confess. And I walked up on the right side of that little step that we called an altar, and I confessed my sins to God, and I walked away feeling clean. And you might say, well, John, that's just like, well, kids make lots of decisions. Like, you believe in G.I. Joes, too. You know what I mean? Like, uh, but I'll tell you what, that took for me. The sensation, that, that call and response of confessing my sin and receiving his purification, it took. It was true for me. And some of you know what it was like. You can't explain how a 7, 8, 9, 10-year-old version of yourself made a decision that, like, just felt so right and it's forever marked you, but it has and some of us as adults made that, that, had that ex experience of confessing your sins and feeling yourself forgiven. It can happen for you. I talk with a group of pastors regularly. We took the summer off. We need to get back into the swing of things. But the primary reason that we talk is, is for the purpose of confessing sins. And we'd kind of gotten this idea from some other people where you confess your sins and then you actually share with each other, in the name of Jesus Christ, you're forgiven. And it's vulnerable enough to confess your sins to other people to say, here's the really dumb thing I did, and we're all pastors, so we all feel even more embarrassed for stupid things that we do and think. And uh, early on, we, we would confess our sins to each other, but the idea of pronouncing absolution, sharing forgiveness, was just the deep end of vulnerability, and none of us felt like we could swim there. And we realized that as we confessed our sins to each other and just said, thank you, it felt like it was hanging out there, and something was missing. We found that in the process we were uh, underestimating the power of sin and also underestimating the power of grace. We were not taking our sins seriously enough to extend to one another God's forgiveness. And so we started making it our practice when we realized we're, we're taking sin too lightly that we would actually pronounce God's forgiveness to each other. And so one would confess sins and the other would say, Brother, God's word tells us that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. Go and sin no more. And that hits different than just, thanks for sharing. The sin was serious enough to take Jesus to the cross. The sin is serious. It's like, it, it, it'll kill us. It'll cost us our very lives. We're, we're wreaking havoc on ourselves and one another. This power of sin is very real. But confess it. Bring it into the open and live into the freedom that God offers us in Jesus Christ. What keeps us from reconciling to God is the power of sin. It's also the guilt of sin. It's, I know that it's an unspoken phenomenon on Sunday mornings that people carry in Saturday night guilt or just Monday through Saturday guilt. Uh, you're, you're going quickly all week, but then when you come to the church building for a worship service and you sit down, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm such a fraud. Or some carry a dark cloud of the stupid and destructive things you've done in the past. You've been the one with knife in hand wreaking havoc and hurting other people. Uh, the, 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 the cloud of shame follows you everywhere you go because of things that you've done, or maybe even because of things that other people have done to you. That guilt and that shame estranges us from one another. We do so many foolish things because we're ashamed of ourselves and we can't bear the intimacy of being close to God or to other people. So do you carry shame because of the things that you've done or the things done to you? Does your heart condemn you? 
Well, good news. Not only is the power of sin broken, but the guilt of sin can be washed away in Jesus Christ. We can be and we are a new creation. Just as we need to confess our sin for our own healing, we also need to confess who we are in Jesus Christ. We need to retrain our minds to live into our renewed identity. Who am I? And who are you? Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who am I? One on whom there's no condemnation. 1 John 3.1, see what love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called children of God and that is what we are. Who am I? I'm a child of God. I'm a co-heir with Christ. I'm Jesus' sibling and a son of the Father. Who am I? 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Who am I? I am a new creation. My past is gone. It has been forgiven. I have been washed of that. Who am I? 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Who am I? I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Who am I? Hear the voice of the Father speaking over Jesus at his baptism. You are my son. You are my daughter that I love. With you I am well pleased. We need to confess our sin, but we also need to confess the faithfulness of God, of washing of us of our sins and regenerating us. And when we doubt and we struggle with our identity, we, we need a physical reminder. We need only come to the table again to remember what God in Christ has done for us in the cross. How he's dealt directly with our sin, satisfying our own need of justice and God's holiness, but he's also dealt with us mercifully because we see in Jesus a God of love who on the cross while our sins held him there said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We need to hear the story one more time. It's why we need to worship every week to hear the reminder of what God in Christ has done for us, that God in Christ has given this, uh, the world the grandest gesture of love to reconcile us to one another, to reconcile us to our Creator, and ultimately in the fullness of time to reconcile heaven and earth. And so we need this weekly rhythm of the invitation to consider our lives, to confess our sin, but we also need the regular reminder that we have been forgiven, that we are without condemnation, that we are a new creation, that we are vessels of the Spirit of the living God, that the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in us, and so we ought to live into that kind of dignity. The weekly rhythm helps us remember and to live into the story. And it's also why we need Christian community. And so it's so appropriate as we come to the table that we remember the words of Paul that each of us ought to search our own hearts to be ready to confess our sins, but we also ought to be ready to discern the body of Christ, the presence of the risen Christ with us at the table, and also the, the body of Christ that's at our left and our right who can pronounce to us forgiveness of sins, who can remind us that God loves us. We need to hear the gospel, to remember the truth about ourselves, and we need community so we can tell each other. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are so quick to forget the gospel. We believe the gospel when we were children or on that college campus 
but we feel like we graduate from it into morality. Help us to never graduate from the gospel. Lord, we renounce self-confidence. We renounce, you know, our own maturity. We put all of our stock in the cross of Jesus Christ and the truer word that he has spoken by offering his life for the life of the world. Speak to us as we receive communion today once more, this message of life and hope. Fill us with your spirit again and help us to see rightly and live with dignity. Help us to speak the truth to one another and to love, to call one another to live into who we are in Christ and to put behind us the lies of the enemy. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.